Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the third week of our series on Matthew chapters 10 and 11 called Offensive Love. If you would like to take notes, there's a link for that down in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. This morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 25. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn, open it up, turn there, keep your Bible open uh, so you could follow along with us this morning. If you don't, you're here with us. There's one in front of you. We invite you to use that as well. And as always, we'll start by reading the passage we're going to be looking at. And uh, again, again, everything that we say really, by God's grace, I pray, comes from God's word. And we're expounding on what God says to us. So Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When you, they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who is speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father is child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes." A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we do have to be here this morning. Father, to be able to, again, to worship you, to, to take time to reflect on you, to praise you for who you are, to praise you and thank you for what you're doing. And Father, we pray now that you would speak and that you would meet us this morning, even as we reflect on these words of your son, Jesus. Father, I thank you that you give us truth that is applicable in all times and all seasons. Thank you for what you're teaching me. I pray that you get me out of the way, Father, that your spirit speak through me and in spite of me. Father, help us each to have have a, a spirit that's open to what your Holy Spirit would say to our hearts. We pray your blessing in Jesus' name. They're what I know some of you might be thinking. You know, you, you're ready for the message and you hear me read this, this passage and you're like, well, that's kind of discouraging. You know, I was ready for an encouraging, uplifting message this morning and here we talk about that we're going to be persecuted and people are going to hate us. And, well, that's not very encouraging. You know, I think of, uh, you know, anybody that's been around church for a while or Christian community, you know, there's a lot of verses that we really love. There's a lot of churches that are verses that we're gonna even take and Christians will put on pictures and we'll make posters as kind of motivational posters. And, and, and you've seen these, um, you know, for example, you know, Matthew chapter 19, you know, uh, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Great hope, you know, great encouragement. And a lot of the verses are verses that, that are speaking of God's promises to us. Uh, some like Psalm you know, uh, 46, you know, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. You know, it promises God's presence in the midst of difficulty. 
or, or others like Jeremiah 29, 11, loved by many. You know, speak of again God's promise to us. See, what does it say? And I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You know, encouraging promises. We like those promises. You know, probably, for many, probably the most common verse that you see this is uh, Philippians 4.13. You know, it, it promises, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And some people have even turned this, you know, kind of almost self-help. You know, if, if I have God on my side, anything I set out to do, I can do it. Now, that's not what the verse means, but that's what a lot of people claim. And, and, but, but you see this often. Now, as we said, you know, we love to do this, verses that are encouraging promises. But, you know, I was thinking about the passage we're looking at this morning, and I thought, well, I wonder what posters there are for the verses that we have this morning. And, and I looked and I couldn't find any. You know, I didn't find any motivational posters with Matthew 10, 18, you will drag, be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. I didn't find that. You know, I didn't, Matthew 5, 22, you'll be hated by all, by, by all men for my name. I, I didn't find, I don't know what picture you would be putting with that, but I just didn't find that. It's just not that motivational, it's not that encouraging. You know, maybe it was the marketer saying, you know, we tried it, didn't sell. Nobody wanted to buy that. Nobody wanted that on the wall. And yet we look at this and we say, this is yet part of what God is teaching. In a sense, he's not only telling us, he's promising that this would happen, that we're gonna have difficulty in life. And I wanna look at this in a sense of not, it's not the negative thing that it may seem. Because what we're gonna see is that God actually is telling us this and saying if you understand this and apply it, it actually will give us confidence. It will actually give us peace. Now, an important thing to understand this though is that we have to see this passage and any passage in its context. If you take any verse out of context, you can sometimes come to wrong conclusions. And here we have to remember that this is part of a long message that Jesus is speaking to his followers and to us. You know, he challenged them at starting at the, at the end of chapter nine. Okay, now I'm challenging you to go out and, and after my death and resurrection and ascension, you're going to be the ones that are gonna continue my ministry here on earth. And he, and he calls us to, yes, we're being sent out ones. And, and what he's saying in this whole thing is trying to give us a biblical perspective on, on our calling as well as on our culture and all that's happening in the culture. Now, if, you, if we go back two weeks ago, we, we looked at the beginning of that whole section. And if you look at what he started with and what we're looking at today, it almost seems that there's a contradiction, that there's two different messages that he's saying. And we've gotta say, how do these things fit together? So for example, if we go back to the end of that chapter uh, nine, he starts off by saying, yeah, um, you know, the harvest is plentiful. You know, the labors are few. Here's the, you know, I'm sending you out, but know that, that the harvest is plentiful, that people are gonna respond to Jesus Christ, people will come to know them. He then says in chapter 10.1, you know, he gives us his authority. So we have the authority to go out and do the ministry of Jesus, that we can expect miracles to happen, and literally what he's saying. And then we're told that we're to proclaim as we go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's establishing his kingdom, a kingdom that is victorious. We can know that, we should be confident, we should be hopeful. That's wonderful. But then just a few verses later, maybe just a minute or so later in him talking to these same people, sending them out, he seems to shift to a far more pessimistic, discouraging message. So for example, we read in a moment ago in verse 16, 
that he talks out and he says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, I don't know about you, but if you know anything about sheep, and Jesus said, okay, here's this thing, and you are like sheep, and here's a bunch of wolves, go at it. I, I don't feel really good about my odds. That's not a really encouraging message there. Where he continues on in verse 17, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. And it doesn't get any better as we continue on. So then we go to verse 21. Brothers will deliver brother over to death and the father is child and children will rise against his parents and have them put to death. Verse 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now we look at that and you say, that's kind of discouraging. People are gonna reject you. They're gonna hate you. They're gonna persecute you. They may even try to kill you. And, and, and then you back up and you say, wait, wait a second. There seems to be two really different messages here. So which one are we to focus on? Are we to go out and have the optimism and confidence that he says in the beginning of the call and saying, okay, the harvest is plentiful, we have God's authority, or do we have the pessimism and kind of discouragement, we're gonna be rejected and hated and persecuted? The question is, should we be optimistic or pessimistic? That's a really important question. It's a hard question, it's a good question. So let me give you a really clear answer. The answer is yes. Okay, well, well, here's what I mean. We, we, stick with me. We all know the difference of an optimist and pessimist, right? You know, always hopeful. The pessimist is the one that sees the problem, sees the, the you know, the, the difficulties. Um, you know, I love the way I found one that explains the difference this way. It says an optimist is the one who invented the airplane. A pessimist is the one who invented the parachute. You know, that's a good picture. I, I, mean, I tend to be the optimist. You know, I see the, you know, anybody that knows me well, that's not a surprise, you know, I see the opportunities, everything's gonna work out well. My wife, uh, she tells me she's not a pessimist, she's a realist. And I could use a little bit more realism in my perspective of life, and, and uh, maybe that's true. Well, the question is, what is God? And if you'd asked me this even a handful of years ago, I probably would have said, you know, well, he's an optimist, you know, God knows everything's gonna work out for good, and, but I wanna tell you as I've studied this and reflected on it and what the Bible teaches, what I've seen is that God really is not either an optimist or a pessimist. There's actually something, a third option that defines biblical perspective. In fact, I don't think there's a word for it, so I had to invent a word. Usually I invent a word that's accidental, this one I intend to. The idea of, of, of a sovereignist, of the idea of a sovereignism. And it's the idea of, of, of realistic confidence, of a perspective, why? Because the third view totally, or combines this total realistic perspective that there is evil and we face challenges, at the same time it's incredibly optimistic about the future. Why, because we know that the Bible says God is in charge, he is sovereign over all that happens, but in his sovereign plan, he allows evil. And, and he even allows at times evil to seemingly prosper or gain ground, but he uses that for his good purpose. We don't always understand that, but what you see is this blending of it's not one or the other or mixed, it's total optimism with total realism, total optimism and confidence knowing that the harvest is plentiful, that there were, you know, but at the same time in this context, we're totally realistic that there is opposition. 
That's what's being taught here in Matthew 10. It's the same idea that you've, another place that a very familiar passage where it's taught is in, in Romans chapter 8, 28. Many of you know this. For we know that, uh, for that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See, it's not that all things are good. It's realistic. There's a lot of things in life that are not good, that are terrible, that are evil. But the promise is that God is in control of even the things that are bad so that he will work all things out for good according to his good purpose. Let me give you a principle that just kind of sums it up. I think the principle is this. The Bible is realistic about evil while at the same time affirming that God is greater than evil. It's totally realistic about evil, but God is greater than evil and is working through it to bring his good purpose. So when we look now at Matthew 10, that's what ties it together. Jesus is teaching that we should know that we are a spiritual war, that we face spiritual powers that oppose us. We know that there will be people who will reject Jesus and reject us as Jesus' messengers. messengers. But at the same time, while that is true, we also know that Jesus has called us to do his ministry and given us the power and authority to do it. We know that ultimately we will be victorious. Ultimately, the field is, is, is white in a harvest. The, plent- the harvest is plentiful. See, that's the perspective of sovereignism. In a sense, being totally realistic about the opposition and difficulty, but at the same time being totally confident that this is all God's good story that he's bringing to completion. We're doing it all under God's, God's uh, authority. So God wants us to know that in the midst of life, what we're going through this day to day, it can seem discouraging, it can seem depressing, it can seem like evil is winning. But at the end of the day, God is doing all this to accomplish his purpose, establishing his kingdom. Now in the midst of this, we see the two sides, right? Okay, this sovereignism has the good news and the bad news. But I also want you to see that in this, where does it start? In a sense, the first truth that we have to start with And the first truth is the idea that this is God's sovereign plan. So we can look at verses 16 through 25. If you see it in in, in isolation, we're gonna get really discouraged. We're gonna get depressed. Man, it's gonna be so hard. But but if we start there, we're still likewise come to wrong uh, answers. And sometimes people are that way. Jesus didn't start by saying, hey, I want you to know the world will will oppose you. You're gonna be persecuted, but God will prevail. Because that implies, in a sense, okay, the world's in charge, but then God is responding to what's happening in the world, and God's gonna somehow bring good out of it. No, God, he starts by saying, no, this is God's kingdom. This is God's plan. We are sent out in God's authority. The promise is that the harvest is plentiful. Those are the foundational truths. Those are the things that we start with. And once we know those foundational truths, he also wants us to realize that in the midst of going out and going into that harvest field, there's gonna be a lot of weeds and there's gonna be a lot of thorns and there's gonna be opposition and and there are gonna be times of even persecution. But all of that fits into God's sovereign plan. So then how do we understand what he's saying here about the opposition and persecution that we're gonna face, the rejection? See, and in this I've I've gotta come back and say, why is Jesus telling us this? I believe that the Bible is by its very nature practical. So it's always telling us not only something we're to think, but if we're to apply that that truth to our lives, it will impact the way that we act. It will impact the way that we live our day-to-day life. So what is he telling us here? 
Well, first of all, remember the foundational truth. He's telling us, know that I'm calling you to go out and do my work and know first of all that there will be people who positively respond. The harvest is plentiful. But at the same point, you need to know that there will be others that will negatively respond, that will respond not only in rejection, but even in hostility. And when they do, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked by the opposition. This is all part of God's story. It's not something where God is saying, well, that happened, how do I make the best of it? Jesus is saying, before I'm sending you out, realize this is all part of my story. Don't be surprised by it. See, if we didn't have this warning from Jesus, I think it would be likely that if we don't understand this warning from Jesus, what's gonna happen is we're gonna get discouraged, we're gonna be surprised by the opposition. We might even get discouraged as we look at the culture and we see the culture moving further and further away from from biblical truth and and the culture is being more hostile to Jesus and we get discouraged. I don't know about you, but it's, that happens to me sometimes. That when I watch the news, I hear things happening, I see the culture is becoming more and more negative towards biblical truth. It's, it's the idea of that, that we're moving further away from even respecting biblical authority, biblical morality. And it can feel like evil's winning. And, and oftentimes then if I think that, then my, you know, I kind of start to think, well, well, the only hope is just to hold on until Jesus comes back and you know, just, geez, I, I can't wait till you return. But we're on the defensive. But when you look at what Jesus is saying here, he doesn't call us to be on the defensive and hold on and just wait that we can you know, hold on until, until he comes back. No, he calls, calls us to go on the offensive, to go out into the world, to proclaim the truth of God's message, to, to bring hope to a world who desperately needs it. See, it's not a biblical view of things to see that the, you know, the evil is prospering and, and we're just holding on. No. Jesus, again, starts this by reminding us that the harvest is plentiful and, and, and we have his authority. But in the midst of that, we're in a hostile culture where while some will respond positively, many will re- not only re- respond negatively, they will re- respond uh, maybe even with anger and hostility. That's all part of God's story. And part of that is that they're not only gonna do that, but they will then not only reject, but try to invert the whole idea of truth and morality. And when I say this is, is that there are gonna be people in our culture who take what, what God says is true and say, well, no, that's a lie. And they'll take what God says is a lie and they'll try to make it truth. And they'll take what God says is right and they'll try to make it wrong. And, and what God says is wrong, they'll try to make it right. That's Jesus' point. If you look at verses 17 and 18, look what he says. That's his whole point here. you in their synagogues and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to be witness, bear witness before them and the Gentiles. He doesn't just say that people will reject or people will repose, but when he says you'll be delivered over to courts and flog you in the synagogues, you'll be dragged before governors. What he's saying is that this, this opposition will be at the level of government and even religion and culture. He's saying not only that we will be opposed by people in authority, but it will be at such a level to such a degree that the good news of God's truth will be perverted and so it will be punished as evil. The good, good news of God's morality will be so perverted so that it will be punished as evil. And that which God calls as good will be celebrated as, or as, as evil, it will be celebrated culturally as good. And, and so you look at that and you say, again, don't be surprised. This is part of what God said would happen. And even sometimes, 
it's, what does it say? In the synagogues, you'll be uh, flogged in the synagogues. What does that say in our culture? There will be some who claim to believe in Jesus, who, what we see, I think, in some liberal churches now, who are embracing this. They claim to believe in Jesus. They'll talk positively about Jesus, but yet they'll totally invert his truth and his morality. And oftentimes they'll talk about him in the sense, well, we need to be more like Jesus. But what happens is they redefine Jesus. It's not the Jesus where they're studying the Bible and say, what does the Bible teach about Jesus? What does Jesus reveal about himself and how do we be faithful to that? What will happen is that they will often take something that we know, well, Jesus is love and Jesus is gracious, and they redefine that. So loving means that he loves everyone and accepts everyone and affirms everyone and and we make up this false view of Jesus and lift it up. But it's a picture of Jesus that they've created in their own mind. It's a picture that grows from our cultural values and our desires. It's the Jesus we want to be, not the Jesus that is revealed in the Bible who is. It's based on our own opinions and our own values, not the word of God. See, and it's many, many in our culture now embrace this and they say, well, we need to be like, more, you know, even as a church, that we need to be more like Jesus, meaning we need to affirm everybody and love everybody and that's who Jesus was. And so then, therefore, if I have a pastor, if I say that anything is wrong, if I say anybody's belief is wrong, if I say any morality is wrong or sinful, worse of all, if I talk about God's judgment, well, that's, that's not Jesus. That's not being very loving. But look, even in this passage, What's it saying? Was Jesus loving everybody and affirming everybody? No, he's saying that my, my message will divide. Even we looked at last week in verse 15, he talked about eternal judgment. He said it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than it would be for the people who reject his teaching. See, that's part of who Jesus' message was. You know, I think the problem is that we have this idea in our culture that we often think of Jesus as a lot like Mr. Rogers. I mean, who can say anything negative about Mr. Rogers? And part of that is Mr. Rogers never said anything negative about anybody else. Now, as best I know, he's a wonderful man. And, and it might be even accurate to say that in aspects of his life that Mr. Rogers was like Jesus. He was very loving and compassionate. He drew kids to himself. But when you look at the full story of Jesus and his ministry as told in the gospel, I could say that Jesus was not like Mr. Rogers. And you see that exemplified here in Matthew 10. When you look at what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 10, he's saying that his truth will cause division. It's not affirming everything, it's, it's stating truth that actually people will divide and hate. Look at verse 17 and 18 again. He warns, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And then in verse 21, he continues in saying, this will go to a point where it will cause division even amongst families. He says, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake for the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, let me ask you, does that sound at all like Mr. Rogers? A message that he would have. Well, let me even try to illustrate that a little bit. Let me try to encourage you to imagine a Mr. Rogers show. I'm gonna try to channel my Inner Mr. Rogers here. I, I didn't have a uh, cardigan sweater, so I'm going to go with this up, up the fleece. And uh, ready to go? I'm not going to sing. No. Okay. But here we go. Welcome, boys and girls, to my neighborhood. I'm so glad that you could come today. Today, 
we're gonna learn a new word. Let me teach you this new word. Now come here. The new word for the day is persecution. <laughs> Can you say that with me? Persecution, yeah, you, good job, boys and girls. Now, when I say persecution, it's not that we're supposed to persecute any other people. No, we're supposed to love other people and be kind to them. But when I, I wanna teach you about persecution because I wanna let you know that if you love people the way that I tell you, they will hate and persecute you. <laughs> yes. You know, people might even try to arrest you. You may have people that beat you up. There may be some people that even want to kill you because you listen to me. Aren't you glad you came to my neighborhood today? <laughs> I'm glad you're with me today, boys and girls. Now, does that sound like a Mr. Rogers show? Can you, you know, say, oh yeah, I remember that one that he said something like that. Of course not. That's, would you, Mr. Rogers would never say that. And in the same way we think of Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers never had a crowd that was gathered out of courthouse calling for his death and execution like Jesus did. Why? Because while there were parts that, yeah, I'm not anti-Mr. Rogers, he did a lot of good things, but Jesus was not like him. And Jesus said a message of truth that, can, you know, the divided, that caused people to hate. And so in the same way, when people say, well, I should be more like Jesus like that, well, that's not the biblical Jesus. See, we have to ask, why did people hate Jesus? Why did they respond to him and reject him in the way they did? And, and a lot of this is right here in the message. So we can look at this and we can say, on the one hand, boy, he was compassion and he loved people and he healed people. And so why did, why did people hate him? And we're trying to do the same thing. We're trying to be compassionate. We love people. We're driven by Jesus' compassion. Why would people respond negatively? What's made clear you know, right, right here in the passage. It says, you know, you'll be hated by all names. You know, number one, if we're hated, it's because we represent Jesus. You know, they were hated for all by my name's sake. But you see it in what Jesus teaches. So if you go back to the end of chapter nine, when Jesus is teaching, do you remember what he taught? It says, what, what did it say? It says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching their synagogues and proclaiming the kingdom. And what are we called to do to proclaim? Proclaim as you go saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here's what you realize, what is the kingdom of God? Yes, now that part of that is it tells us the story of God's intervention so that Jesus died on the cross so that, so that we could have relationship with him, be part of that kingdom. Our sin could be forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. It can not only heal our relationship with God, it can begin the process of, of restoring all that is broken because of that sin. But the vital thing to realize in this good news of the kingdom is it implies that there is a king. That there is a king who deserves the right of ultimate authority in our lives. And it is impossible to embrace the kingdom, to be a part of the kingdom, to have the benefits of the kingdom without also embracing and submitting to that king in our lives. And that is why people responded to Jesus the way they did, why they hated him then, why they hate him now. Because ultimately we understand this and we reject his authority as king in our lives. Again, the only way to truly embrace Jesus in his kingdom is to acknowledge him as king and submit to him as king in our lives. You can't say that, well, I have the kingdom without him as king. There are some that try to say that. I think some, well, I accepted Jesus as Savior and I asked him to forgive my sins. But at the same time, I don't want him to be the Lord of my life. I don't want to be the leader. I don't, I don't embrace him as God. 
I reject him as king. I just want him to be, I just want him to save me. My, my friends, God doesn't give us that option. It says the good news is the kingdom. And if I embrace the message of the kingdom, I've got to embrace all of that Jesus is. And when I confess my sins, what is the primary sin that we confess? It's not only the bad things that we've done. Ultimately, the, the number one sin that we do is that we, we say, I, I need to be my own God. I reject God's authority over my life. And so part of that confession is, not only I've done these wrong things, but I've done these wrong things because I've, I've said I'm gonna be my own God. And if we're there, Jesus doesn't say, okay, well, here's what you have to do. It's no, I agree with you, God, I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me and I wanna be a part of that kingdom but part of that is I ask you to forgive me and I give you the right to be the king. I give you the right to call what's right or wrong in my life. I give you the right. Now, do I totally live that out? No, because there are many things that I've been in control and then God shows me truth and man, I have a hard time letting go of it. But when I've made him king, it means that I'm gonna struggle and I'm gonna try to let go. I'm not going to argue with them over who's in control. Now, we struggle with this. I think all of us do as people, but I think we even in one sense do so more as Americans because we don't understand the whole idea of a kingdom where there's anyone who has ultimate authority over us. See, in America, we have democracy. We have political leaders who, who lead us in a way that's consistent with our desires. See, we vote them in, and if they don't do what we want them to do, we vote them out. But that's not the way that a king works. A king has complete authority over his subjects. So it's not asking what you want to do. How do I make you happy? Well, I'll adjust what, I want, what you want to do. He doesn't ask for our input. No, and we, we've got to realize that a lot of times we look at things spiritually in terms of a democracy. That's why we re our culture recreates Jesus. We create this false Jesus. Well, this is the king that I want. This is the God that I want. It's not a king that's actually in charge. It's one that I'm going to vote into power. And if I don't like it, I'm going to vote into, out of power or I'm going to change who he is. My friends, again, our culture, we're self-sufficient and, and it's easy to adopt this into our spiritual reality. But ultimately, we're not looking for an advisor. We're not looking for someone to cooperate with. I think of even that old bumper sticker, you know, that talked about, you know, God's my co-pilot. You know, it's kind of, I'm in charge here and I'm gonna ask God his opinion. No, God's not our co-pilot. He's not our advisor. He's not our president that we vote in or out. To accept him, it means that we recognize he is king we accept him and submit to him as one who has ultimate authority in our lives. Have you ever done that? And it's scary to do that, but when we let go and we embrace him, what we realize is that his plan for our life is a whole lot better than our own. And for many of us, it's not until we realize, you know, me being in charge isn't working real well. But God offers grace and forgiveness and freedom through Christ, relationship with him that begins to not only heal our relationship with God, but all the other things in life. Now, that being said, it also tells why they reject us. As it talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, that we are Christ's ambassadors. He is the king. We have been sent out as the king to carry forth his message. And so they reject us because we are his messengers. So because anyone who represents the king and his kingdom in that message communicates that there is a king that has the right of ultimate authority. There is a king, a God who establishes truth a king to whom we're all ultimately accountable. And what happens is that we can go out and preach that message and in a culture that says, no, I want to be my own king. I want to be in charge. I, I, wanna, I want you know, myself to define what is right and wrong. 
Suddenly it becomes offensive. And I can go out in the spirit of Jesus. This is where you see Jesus filled with compassion, reaching out to people, healing people, but still people hated him. And in the same way as Christians, we can go out, we can be compassionate towards people. And they're still gonna hate us because we're exposing truth. You, a good, good example of that. Uh, back this summer, many of you might be familiar with, the uh, Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. And as a result, you've had all kinds of people that have attacked pregnancy, uh, um, uh, service, uh, pregnancy centers throughout, Christian pregnancy centers throughout our country. Now these are some great ministries, pregnancy services across the street. I'm serve on the board, I'm involved. It's a wonderful ministry. And when you look at these ministries, what do they do? They serve women. And as much as they're attacked, of, you know, no, they actually give an ultrasound, try to help women make a right decision. And then if you decide to keep that child, okay, we're gonna help you, we're gonna counsel you, we're gonna support you, we're gonna give you resources through the pregnancy. We're gonna train you to be a better mom. We're gonna train you after that baby is born. It's loving and supporting women. That's all good stuff. Trees. And they're attacking them. And, and oftentimes, you know, spray painting stuff and you know, breaking windows. All those are good things, loving things, compassionate things. Because in saying, here's an ultrasound and we're trying to help women make a decision about saving life, in stating that truth, it's exposing that abortion is taking life. It's stating a truth that I can do so even with all Christ's love and compassion, but yet because it exposes sin, people who want to hide their sin still hate it. That's what Jesus talks about in John chapter three. He talks about the fact that he's a light. Look what he says, and this is a judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because the works were evil. There are gonna be people that hate the light because what it exposes. Continues, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his work should be exposed. They hate it. But on the other hand, there are people that realize, okay, I need the light. For whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now what is the light? We can, we're in darkness and we know that we need the light. We're stumbling, we can't see. And light does two things. It reveals both our sinfulness and it reveals our need and the solution. And there are some people that see the light and they're like, that's what I need and boy, I thank you. And, and, and they embrace the light because they know that that's where they're gonna find life. And there are other people that see that same light and hate it and turn it out because I don't want to be exposed. Now some of those might eventually realize the value of the light, but the fact is in the short term they're gonna hate it. It's what we need and at the same time it's what we fear. So then if we look at all this, then what is God calling us to do? Because again, as what we've seen, as I said in the way in the message, I believe the Bible is by its very nature incredibly practical. God's not only trying to teach us things that we should know, but if we understand and apply these truths, they should impact the way we not only think, but what we do. So, so let me briefly give you four practical applications. First of all, I think Jesus is trying to tell us, don't be surprised or discouraged when you face opposition. Don't be surprised or discouraged when people reject you. And remember, this is all part of God's story. See, here's what we've got to realize. If all I looked at was the positive, God's gonna called you to this and he's gonna give you his power and suddenly we face opposition and rejection, man, it can be downright discouraging. And there are some of you, maybe it's like, well, I'm gonna try to witness to a friend and they shut you down. I don't wanna hear that or maybe even responded negatively. Man, I'm gonna give up. And it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to get depressed. I understand that. And what Jesus is saying, don't let that happen. 
you know, recognize that yes, we're gonna get discouraged even by what's happening culturally, but remember God's perspective. And if we remember his perspective, we're gonna realize that okay, this is all part of God's story and he's accomplishing good, even at times allowing evil. And specifically, it's not only get, don't be surprised or discouraged, but specifically as we then try to reach people, it's telling us, okay, don't, don't give up, persevere in trying to reach lost sheep. I remember, you know, in Matthew at the end of Mount 9, what the Jesus said, he was filled with compassion. He saw people as, 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 as helpless, as, as sheep without a shepherd. And he said this, this compassion for the people he knew who would oppose him. Now, let's keep that in mind. I, I love how Jesus talks about in Luke 15 that he is the good shepherd, that he goes out and finds the one lost sheep. Have you all ever tried to help an animal that is trapped in some way? Okay, many of us have done this. Okay, we, it might, might be our pet, but a lot of times it's a wild animal and you just see it trapped and, and it's caught in something and you try to help it out. And what happens? I don't know about you, but I try to help an animal and it looks at me with gratitude and saying, thank you for helping me out of my trap. You know, it just is like so appreciative. No, I mean, what happens is we're trying to help it and it turns on us and tries to bite us and it's flapping and it's fighting against us because it doesn't understand the motive. It's just trapped and it will actually respond negatively, harshly, angrily. Now, do you think there's a picture there that Jesus wants us to see? That he says, okay, I'm the good shepherd, okay, I'm concerned about these sheep that are lost without a shepherd and I'm calling you to go out and reach them. Okay, when they're lost and where they're trapped, they're not the enemy, they're captives of the enemy. When they're trapped, they don't always understand the motive of our savior. They don't understand that they're lost. They, they will oftentimes respond negatively and harshly. Don't get discouraged. In fact, I really believe the scripture teaches that there are times that people respond negatively. It may actually be a sign that God is working. There are times that somebody, I share the gospel and somebody comes and they respond really negatively. Why? Because there's sensitivity in the heart. People that are, have no sensitivity, they don't care. They're it's false. Why did people respond with a negativity? negativity? Because God's per, pricking at their heart. There's a sensitivity. God's doing something. That's not something to get discouraged by. That's actually a sign of hope. Persevere. Third of all, in this, God is calling us to be wise and faithful and strategic in the way that we try to share our faith, both individually and as a church. This is the main point that Jesus is saying in verse 16 when he says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Oh, what a great passage. You know, what he's telling us, we could spend a lot of time talking about what this means and a lot of implications, but in its context, Jesus is speaking about how we're called to represent him and we're going to receive rebuse and rejection by those that we try to reach. And he's saying, so when you try to reach, be wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. What he's saying is on the one hand, you know, go out and be wise, be consistent, be, be faithful, don't give up, you know, don't, don't give into the cultural pressure to change your message because you wanna be accepted or you wanna be liked by people. But on the other hand, be, be strategic, be wise as serpents. Don't you know, hold these two things side by side. What, what the Bible teaches is that the gospel is a stumbling block. And you see this new, numerous times taught there. There are gonna be people that are gonna stumble over Jesus, don't like to hear him, they're offended by him. And we shouldn't compromise what we say. I've seen some churches and some have gotten in the news even recently, it's like, we're trying so hard to reach people, we don't wanna offend anyone. No, the gospel is a stumbling block. And you see what Jesus is saying here. 
But on the other hand, I want to make sure that you don't stumble over anything before you get to the gospel. And there are some times that as Christians or even as a church that we can present the gospel in such a way that people are offended before we even get to share anything about Christ. I'm offending them because I'm offensive, because I'm not loving, because I'm not compassionate. No, God wants to be sure to say, okay, now be wise as serpents in the way you do things, even as you're as gentle as doves. I love the example of Paul and his ministry. Where we see in Acts 16, he's speaking to a bunch of Jews and he goes to the synagogue and he's quoting prophecy and scripture. And then we see in Acts 17, he goes to the Athens and he goes to you know, the secular place of, of debate and he's quoting their secular uh, um, poets and philosophers. And he's using their language to reach out. I think even that's part of what, what he's saying here is saying, you know, if you, you know, if you go into the city and they don't respond, you go to another city and part of what he's saying is, okay, if they're not open, you go, you know, there are people that are gonna be open. Be wise in this. Paul says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. He never compromised what he said. He always adapted how he said it. Even as a church, we've taken this idea and we've put it into one of our core values. And this is what we say as our core value. Um, we commit to be uncompromising in the commitment to the timeless truth of God's word and to resist any cultural pressure to adapt our message to the contemporary cultural values while at the same time seeking to be culturally relevant by appropriately adapting the methods we, we use and communicating God's truth. That's what we seek to do. That's what God has called us to do as an individual and as a church. The lastly, last application, I think he's calling us to realize that we're called to press on with realistic confidence. As we go out and we, you know, we say, okay, here's these two ideas and, and see, we're gonna be opposed, but God is in charge. He's sending out with this message and he says, okay, you know, you're gonna go do that. And I love even what he says at one point. He says, you're gonna stand before people and you're not gonna know what to say. Don't worry. Say, yeah. But at the end of the day, get in that conversation. Somebody might ask you a question, and then you pray, God, give me the ability to know what to say. Did he, this is his message. He gives you his ability. He gives you his power. It's gonna, he's gonna bless it. And we realize that even in the midst of this, that we're, yes, we're gonna have opposition. Yes, we're gonna have you know, people that are gonna reject us, and, but we don't know where that's going. And yes, it's gonna be at times seemingly discouraging, but recognize this is all part of God's story. And where we start is where we need to end. That he calls us and he says, okay, I'm sending you out to continue my ministry. The harvest is plentiful. You have my authority. Go out with confidence. Don't be surprised by the opposition, but persevere, press on, because we know at the end of the day that his kingdom is expanding. That at the end of the day, it may be hard, but he will bless those efforts. And we will see not only people come to know Christ, but if, if, the, if believers are faithful, the church is faithful, in his time, he will bring even a revival, a change to a culture, as we be faith, seek to be faithful to the call that God has given us. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.